Good morning again. As uh, the elders mentioned, Pastor Adam has been on a sabbatical, so he's got three weeks left, and uh, he'll be back. And uh, my name's Kevin. I'm the administrator here, coming on some 10 years, and uh, so it's my turn to speak while Adam's gone. And we have been in a series titled The Gospel Works On, and we've had all kinds of different uh uh, and categories, if you will. And today, the sermon title is "The Gospel Work." Uh, the gospel works on sin's consequences. And having said that, let me ask you a question: Does the gospel work on sin's consequences? You know, if you're here today and deciding whether to follow Jesus or not, or uh, trying to figure out if the Bible's trustworthy, one of the things I used to wrestle with with that same question when I was coming to my face, is exactly the thing we're going to talk about today. And that is the Bible doesn't varnish its heroes. It doesn't sanitize their sins. And in today, when David's time was around, Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, they didn't record their failures. It was all successes. But as you see in the Bible, its greatest heroes, Moses, Abraham, and today David, it records their mistakes with as much honesty as it did their, their successes. So that's not the message. That's just a bonus. Paul says there are consequences to everything we do. You've heard the phrase, what goes around comes around. And in Galatians 6-7, Paul mentions this principle of consequences crystal clear. He says, don't be misled. No one makes a fool of God. What a person plants, he will harvest. In other words, whatever one sows, he will also reap. This passage is a simple rule, rule of farming. If you plant corn, you're going to get corn. And this is also true spiritually. There are no exceptions. You know, one of the books we never talk about is Obadiah. And one of the scariest verses in there is, As you have done, so it shall be done to you. And David is going to learn this in dump truck loads in today's passage. This is one of the most riveting passages to me in all the Bible and some huge lessons for us today. So we're going to look at this and figure out, uh, read through the passage, which is 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 15. And then we're going to talk about what difference does any of this make for you and me today. Again, the passage is 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 15. Now, I didn't look up where it's at in those few Bibles. I can tell you it's after 2 Samuel chapter 11. You know, David reminds me of uh, the nursery rhyme by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Anybody remember there was a little girl? There was a little girl who had a little curl right in the middle of her forehead. When she was good, she was very good indeed. But when she was bad, she was horrid. And David, this is after 2 Samuel 11, has been horrendous. David's not some kid anymore. He's around 50 years old. He's been the king of Israel some 20 years. And he's the most powerful ruler of his time. And 2 Samuel chapter 12 opens. This is a year after having Bathsheba over for a cup of tea. He's violated every commandment with relationship to God and others. He's violated commandment number 10. He coveted Bathsheba. Commandment 7, he committed adultery. Commandment 6, he had Uriah murdered. Commandment 9, he lied to cover up the murder. And commandment 8, he stole Uriah's wife. And you know, at the end of chapter 11, it looks like God's just displeased. 
David had gotten away with it all scot-free. And then a year later, chapter 12 comes. And the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to reprimand David. Now, how would you like this assignment? I think this must have felt like Jonah when he got his letter in the mail to go rebuke the king of Israel, the guy that killed Goliath. So let's start in verse 1. Nathan went to David and he tells him a parable. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks, but the poor man had nothing but one tiny little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat with him and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now, what was David before he was king of Israel? What was his job? Shepherd. You think he could relate to this? You think when he was growing up as a little boy, he had a favorite pet, favorite sheep? David starts to let his guard down, gets drawn into this story, and he wants to hear more. Verse 4, now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who would come to him. Now notice how David reacts. David goes into a full-blown rage. David loses his mind. And in verse 5, David's anger burned against the man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, Nathan, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore that lamb fourfold because he did such a terrible thing and had no pity. You tell me who this guy is, and I'll take care of it, David says. Hey, did Nathan set David up or what? I picture David standing on that carpet over those trap doors and Nathan sitting there with the lever in his hand. And in verse 7, he's about to pull it. And Nathan said to David, and I try to imagine this scene face to face with the king of Israel, knowing Nathan's side, knowing what David's thinking. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are that man, David. Consequently, David says, the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave you your master's wives and and gave you the house of Israel and gave you Judah. And if this were too little, I would have given you much more. If you needed more wives, I would have given you more. You took Uriah's one wife and killed him. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah with the sword and took his wife to be your own. David, you're the man I'm talking about. You are that man. And I can only imagine the utter silence and how stunned David must have been to be a year later and not even recognize that he was the villain in Nathan's story. And had Nathan stopped right there, it would have been agonizing enough. But he doesn't. It's just the beginning. There are four consequences of David's sin that he's going to suffer for the rest of his life. Remember he said repay that lamb fourfold? Remember that number four. Consequence number one, verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah to be yours. Now the sword in Old Testament times can be violence. It can be not necessarily the mode, but Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, all three of those sons of David, died by the sword. Consequence number two. Behold, I will raise up evil against you and your house. 
Now, what does that mean? Well, if you flip just a few pages or verses after this, David's son Amnon raped his sister Tamar. Tamar had a mental, emotional meltdown and went into depression. Uh, Absalom fled into exile, uh, alienated from David the rest of his life, and later he died pursuing and trying to kill David. David's son Adonijah challenged David's selection of Solomon as the next king. Solomon killed him, killed his own brother, and on and on and on and on it went in David's family. Just as God said, the evil never left. Consequence number three, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did this in secret, David, but I'm going to do it in broad daylight. And what it happened? Well, in ancient customs, when a king took over a kingdom, this is what they did. It was the absolute insult to say the kingdom is mine. And did it did it come true? You bet it did. It was David's own son, Absalom, that did this very thing in 2 Samuel 16. And consequence number four, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. David's child dies. And you know what I forget? This child was just over a year old. This wasn't some newborn. This child was over a year old. Remember repaying that lamb fourfold? Four huge consequences. Four kids lost. And on the seventh day that child died. It wasn't even quick that the child died. Three quick points. God forgave David, but the consequences were permanent. These were for the rest of David's life. If you back up and we go to verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, the Lord's also put away your sin. He's forgiven you. God's forgiven you. You shall not die. Now, what was the penalty for adultery and murder under the law? Death. Death. So the second point I want to make. Why did the child have to die? It wasn't a judgment for the child being conceived out of marriage or adultery. However, most likely, it was a substitute for David and Bathsheba. Remember, David convicted himself out of his own words. As surely as, this, as, as the Lord lives, this guy deserves, this person deserves to die. And he did. And yet, Nathan said, you won't die. But God spared them. And took the kid instead when they were the ones that deserved his eyes. Does that sound familiar? That's a theme. Sounds kind of like the gospel. Jesus took my spot. Three, had the child lived, God's name would have been disgraced among the pagan nations for blessing and allowing such sin. Hey, the baby's death is tragic, but despising God and open sin would have led to the death of the entire nation of Israel. And today, just like when we grieve the Holy Spirit in sin, God would have been mocked in his followers, the hypocrites of the entire world. Christians just the hypocrites that people always claim we are when we don't have consequences for sin. And, you know, too often Christians, we tend to as Christians, we tend to categorize sins, rating some as small and inconsequential and others as huge and far reaching in the damage they cause. But in reality, no one sins in isolation. Each act of disobedience affects not only the sinner, but also others in both the present and the future. Hey, if we were to separate Adam and Eve's sin from context, few of us, few of us would convict them of some great crime. I mean, they just had and swallowed a piece of fruit with a tree that had do not eat sign on it. Yet, the entire 
creation, the entire universe, the entire earth fell under sin's curse. And every person born since then has entered the world with a sin nature that separates them from God. Consequences from the very first sin. Today. And you know, one of the big points is, the devil got Eve to believe those same things. You shall not die. The consequences won't happen. They do happen. And sometimes, here's a big point, we reap what others have sown. Sometimes we don't suffer from the sins we've committed, but from the sins of others. If we back up, all of David's kids and family reaped what their father had sown. Some of us here today are suffering not because of wrongs we've done, but because of the sins of our family, parents, grandparents, generations long ago. Sins like drug abuse, alcoholism, incest, divorce, gambling, anger, neglect, perfectionism, shaming, all forms of abuse, all forms of abuse and all kinds of dysfunction. And their dysfunctional behavior and damage was inflicted on us, and usually we don't even know it because it's what's normal. And unless the cycle is broken, we pass on those exact consequences and damages to our own kids. And I want to tell you, I want to stop talking about David for a minute. I grew up in a home with a few of these. And I knew what I was doing was the exact same things that my parents had done and struggled with. And that affected my kids and family and how it was affecting them. And I finally recognized the need for some help to break the cycle. There were some serious and life-lasting consequences already inflicted, even though at 39 I went to get help. And consequently, because of the sins I had done, I, I went through a divorce. I got help and uh, went into rehab and recovery for alcoholism. My kids outwardly excelled, but they struggled with internal things from the dysfunction. These kids do good with grades, but they have anxieties and black holes from a broken family. Things they didn't do. And I broke the cycle, but the consequences are in motion until I go to the grave. And we have a world teeming with folks just like this. You know, trying to get rid of those consequences is like trying to nail jello to a tree. They're there. And today, do I honestly believe I'm forgiven and have a new family? I do. I believe I'm restored. But in relationship to God is what restored is talking about. My family and kids aren't the same today. They never will be. It's like Humpty Dumpty, folks. You can put them back together, but it's not the same egg. There's some healing, but it's never the same. And relationally, it's never the same places I don't go, uh, go to. There's people who are hurt, and I have to respect and stay away. We use restored like nothing happened, and the consequences are all gone. And I'm telling you, in recovery, in step nine, where you go and make direct, direct amends to people I hurt, not all of them wanted to see or hear me. They didn't want to accept my apologies. I was out of I'm sorry, and I love you. I love my kids, but I didn't know what that meant. The consequences of the things and, and living I had done are lifelong but I can live in amends. And you say, well, what's that? Isn't that the same thing? No. Living amends is not, I'm sorry, but I live in a way to those people who didn't want to hear it and to the kids who get upset when I do things, I live in a different way. And the first and most important amend in my, uh, that I can make to those people that I hurt or whoever don't want to hear it is my own recovery. 
I do everything I can to make sure I'm not going to drink again or act like I used to do. And that's my first amendment to my children as well as all the others and people I hurt. The victims, the families, churches I belong to. There's consequences to what I did. And their lifelong wounds means I have to do some lifelong I'm sorry's and amends. Not just a one time I'm done and put it behind me. And this is the lesson that David learned. It doesn't matter who you are. Sin has consequences. So, now we get to that most important question we're going to ask. You guys remember what it is? So what? What difference does any of this make for you and me today? Well, I don't know about you, but there's four huge questions that jump out to me from this passage today. Number one, you say, Kevin, this is very stunning. Since David is stated in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. How was it then that David despised the Lord? How was it that he did such sinful things? Next to Jesus, the Scriptures cover more of David's life than any other man. This is David, Israel's greatest king, one of the most amazing men who ever lived. David who wrote the Psalms. David who knew the Ten Commandments. David knew the story of Samson. David who was loyal and spared Saul. David knew what was right. David knew the scriptures. Look, when he's, when he's quoting the fourfold, man must repay the land fourfold, it's Exodus 22.1. He's quoting. It's the restitution laws. And it says if a man steals an ox or a sheep, he kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. David knew the scriptures. A man after God's own heart. Kevin, what happened? Well, this was due to his sinful nature which he retained even as a great man of God. If you go to Galatians 5.21, it tells us what the sinful nature is, what every one of us is born with. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. That is the default setting when we're born under the curse. That's the flesh. And Galatians opposites that from the Holy Spirit. Now here's a quick test to see if we have it. Now can you imagine today in the news we watch and how people comment on things on social media, how many people would want to see half of what David done and wish them wish him ill or fail or to see him fall? That's the sin nature. Or you're sitting here today or you're sitting in a sermon going, I hope so-and-so is listening to this. That's the sin nature. You got it. You passed the test. But because of Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden, every human being is born with a sin nature. The sinful nature, the flesh, is the fallen moral and spiritual condition of every human being inclined towards sin. After the fall, when God's shalom and peace and harmony were violated, and sin and death entered the world and breaking all things, it was not possible not to sin. And Galatians 5, 19-21 shows drastically different the sinful nature is from the Holy Spirit. Hey, let's go to David who wrote Psalm 51 after this whole incident. Psalm 51, 5. Surely I was sinful from birth. James 3. We all stumble in many ways. It's clear the word stumble there means sin. James doesn't say we sin occasionally. But we all stumble and sin in many ways. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned his own way in Isaiah. 
The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, Jeremiah says. And you know, either we can use the law and pride to distance ourselves from God and others, or God will use the law in our lives to show us we're just like Adam, the prototypical sinner and as helpless as the lowliest person we'll ever meet. And sadly, you know, you can only love people when you're down on their level. So knowing ourselves like Paul in Romans 7, the struggles and being real and being honest with himself affects our ability to even be able to love others. Question number two. Well, what is the biblical difference between discipline, punishment, and consequences? We hear these words all the time, and sometimes we use them interchangeable. Hey, according to the Bible, God's grace saves us from the punishment we deserve. But it does not save us from the consequences of our actions. And it never saves us from God's discipline. We can tend to use these words interchangeably, folks, but we're comparing apples to hand grenades. To lead well and love well, parenting, coaching, whatever you do with authoritative roles and earth and all those various roles, you have to know the difference, biblical difference, between punishment, discipline, and consequences. Punishment deals with the past. It's a punitive action done to make the offender repay the debt they have incurred. It is done for the benefit of the offended rather than for the offender. The idea of punishment implies repaying someone with what he or she deserves. Hey, I'd say that's the exact op- opposite of the gospel, right? Wouldn't you agree? Discipline looks towards a better future. It's a corrective action done to change the negative behavior or patterns of an offended offender. It is done for the benefit of the offender rather than the offended. Consequences are often what we deal with in the present. They are the negative natural chain of events that occur because of our poor choices and actions. These results are not done to someone. Rather, they're self-inflicted wounds resulting from personal choices. What I did. Listen to this. Punishment is about condemnation. Discipline is about correction. Punishment is about being fair. Discipline is about doing what is most helpful. Punishment is about making the situation right. Discipline is about helping the person get right. Punishment is a response when the relationship is broken. Discipline is a response when the relationship is working towards restoration. Punishment is a sign of hate. Discipline is a sign of love. Hebrews 12, 5 through 8 makes it clear. If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. If you don't ever face discipline, it says something's terribly wrong. And what fell upon David and what comes to us as a consequence of sin is God's discipline. You say, okay, Kevin, here's the third question. What is genuine repentance? What's that look like? What's that look like? I've sinned against you. I've apologized. But how do you know I mean it? You know, a few verses before Jesus' instruction in Matthew 18 about church discipline, he provides us with help for determining whether an individual is habitually repentant and would the person be willing to cut off a hand or tear out an eye. In other words, it wasn't literal, thank goodness. I'd be standing here just uh, small. But what he was saying was, are you willing to do whatever it takes to fight against the sins or 
to do what it takes. What is genuine repentance? You know, sometimes it's easier to define what something is by telling you what it is not. So here's six things genuine repentance is not. Genuine repentance is not a recognition of sinful actions. Hey, in Numbers 14, the people had rebelled and God said they weren't going to enter the promised land and they were sorry. And they tried to enter the promised land and what happened? They were beat down at Hormah, even after they recognized their sinful actions. Two, genuine repentance is not sorrow over sin. Hebrews 12:17, Esau. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he had found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Three, genuine repentance is not seeking forgiveness for your sin. Hey, go read about Saul. Go read in 1 Samuel 24 through 26. Saul did this over and over. Number four, genuine repentance is not feeling a weight of guilt on your conscience. It's not feeling guilty or, or sorrow for yourself. Uh, go to Matthew 27 and read about Judas. Genuine repentance is not commitments or vows to not sin again. Hey, Peter did this over and over. Even if I have to die with you, Lord, Matthew 26, 35, I will not disown you. I won't desert you. And genuine repentance, six, is not a short season or victory over sin. Hey, in 2 Peter 2, 20-21, the false teachers uh, who had never truly been converted to Christ, look at them. They heard the gospel and moved toward it, but then rejected the Christ of that gospel. Now, in the big picture, even unbelieving people can act good for a while. So you say, okay, Kevin, well, what are some signs of genuine repentance? What are we talking about here? We name our sin as sin and don't spin it or excuse it. And further, we demonstrate godly sorrow, which is to say a grief primarily about the sin itself. And we're going to look at David in Psalm 51 here in a second. Not just a misery about being caught or having to deal with the consequences. Hey, listen to this piece, this article from an article called Convicted Soul. This guy is Gilbert Gustafson. And you want to know what he did? He's a former priest who abused four boys from 78 to 82. Listen to what he says quickly about uh, answering about consequences. Do you see your consequences, jail time, and removal from active ministry is sufficient or fair in light of what you did? He says, I've come to see the consequences as my best friends. Without the consequences, I would have never changed. The jail time, the publicity, the restrictions in ministry... These consequences have uh, done great good. And listen to what he says. I had to face who I really was. There were times, however, when he had pushed back. He thought the Dallas Charter was unfair. He had 20 years of recovery. He thought he could serve safe and the community be safe. He was hurt and angry about the decisions. But today, this is what I love about this guy. Today, today, he says, I acknowledge If I had not abused those boys, then these consequences wouldn't have happened. I'm not blaming anybody else. Now, listen to that. Now, listen to David in Psalm 51, 3. My sin is always before me. In other words, my sin haunts me day and night in some versions. David, that sin which he put behind him, which he didn't even know he was the bad guy in the story and just went on living life like nothing happened. Now is constantly the sin is constantly in my front view, to humble and make me continually feel sorry and tremble. 
we see here David's contrition, true repentance for his sin was not a slight, sudden passion, but an all abiding grief. David didn't say here. Notice what David didn't say, folks. David didn't say um, my punishment is ever before me. David didn't say my consequences are ever before me. What bothered him was his sin. And too often, many grieve over the consequences of sin, but few over the sin itself. Hey, it happened years ago. Who cares? You're forgiven, right? Adam calls that cheap cheap grace. Cheap grace. David, Paul, and Mr. Gustafson here didn't believe that or feel that way. And you know what else David did? He recognized his personal responsibility. He reiterates over and over, my transgressions. My iniquity, my sin. He does not throw blame on circumstances, people, the family, or talk about his personality or legal consequences, that his name was forever smeared in Scripture for something that happened years back or distorted thinking or moods or some bad day. All these are factors to sin, but after all the allowances made for them, the sin is the doers and the sinner must bear all the burden and consequences. Some other points about genuine repentance, if we if found out, we confess rather than having to have the full truth pulled from us. Real repentance, genuine repentance is normally accompanied by transparency, honesty. We have a willingness to make amends. We'll do whatever it takes to make things right. Demonstrate we've changed, not talk about it. We are patient with those we've hurt or victimized as they process their hurt. I'm speaking from my own experience, too. And we don't pressure or guilt them into forgiving us. Another point is we may grieve the consequences of our sin, but we don't get angry about them. We don't resent the consequences and we don't try to wipe them out. We understand that sometimes my sin has caused great damage to others that is not healed in the short term, if ever. And if our sin involves addiction or pattern of behavior that we just can't seem to break, we seek help. We seek help. We get a counselor. We get a good 12-step Christian recovery program or go to a rehab center. We don't resent accountability, pastoral rebuke, or church discipline. And lastly, we seek our comfort in the grace of Jesus Christ. Not comfort from being free of the consequences of my sin. You say, wow, Kevin, you got more questions. I got one more. Question four, and this is the important one. So does repenting and forgiveness remove consequences? Let's go back to verse 13. David said to Nathan, man, I sin against the Lord. I'm sorry. I feel awful. I won't do it again. I've learned my lesson. Let me ask you two questions. Do you believe David was sincerely sorry? Do you? I do. Do you believe David was forgiven? I sure do, too. Look, all sin ultimately separates us from God. And here's something, Christians, we got to understand, because we tend to put consequences. All sin separates us from God. Let me make this point. However, however, the bigger the sin, the bigger the consequences. If I hate someone, have I broken the Ten Commandments? Now, if I hate somebody and pull out a gun and blow them away, have I broken the Ten Commandments? 
Am I going to face the same consequences for those? You think, you think, if David had stolen a pencil from the homeroom teacher, his consequences would have been the same as he just faced in that passage there? Not one bit. Hey, even Jesus understood this. Listen to him in Matthew 18:6 on leading others to sin, specifically kids. But if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, and I can't see him saying this in the Bob Ross painter voice, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. I think Jesus is trying to say there's some serious consequences to leading others to sin. Now, you think if you stole gum, that's what he'd be telling you to? Consequences, folks. Consequences. The bigger the sin, the bigger you hold a position in leadership, the bigger the consequences. Well, you say, Kevin, but 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. True. However, however, nowhere in the Bible does it eliminate consequences. Even if we're saved. Even if we're sorry. Even if we repent. Even if we act right. Even... Decades after the sins were committed. Hey, ask Brian Williams, formerly of NBC, about consequences. Ask President Richard Nixon about consequences. Let's look biblically. Talk to Samson about consequences. Ask Saul. You know, I could go on and on and on with biblical examples of consequences. And you know, ironically, one of the greatest ones was right at the cross. The thief was told he was forgiven and would be in paradise. And yet, hours later, he suffered an excruciating death and paid the consequences for his sin. Right next to Jesus. 1 Peter 4.8, love covers a multitude of sins. We love to hear this. Some cover-ups are love and some cover-ups are lies. It depends on who's doing the covering. When a guilty party covers their own offense, it's a lie. The only love involved is prideful self-love. Listen to R.C. Sproul. When we are wronged, our calling is to practice a careful moral calculus. If, is this offense one I should let go of? Is it among the multitude love covers? Or is this offense grievous enough that love means confronting in grace my brother? There are cases where we are to overlook If they were inconsiderate, bothered us, in many cases, it's better to simply overlook and move on. But if the sin is greater, then we should confront them using the model presented in Matthew 18. In all cases, we should have an attitude of forgiveness towards them, willing to forgive the wrong when they ask forgiveness. You say, but Kevin, what what about God's mercy? What about all this stuff about God's mercy? In his mercy, God many times softens the consequences we deserve. And I'm here to tell you that personally. In my life, had all the dumb things played out that I did, I would be taking a dirt nap today. The dirt nap. I wouldn't be here. So it's true about God's mercy. But nevertheless, true believers don't lose our salvation when we sin. Romans 8, 35-39. And yet, David, David, after this, in Psalm 51.12, had lost the joy of his salvation. And I'm going to wrap this up. One inescapable consequence this side of eternity is the fact that every human being in history 
dies. The world's dying. And Satan loves to blind people to the very fact he wants you and I and everyone else to believe that this is all just going to go on forever. But it's not. And you say, Kevin, this was really, really a hard sermon. I'm not going to leave here happy. Does repenting and forgiveness remove consequences? Does the gospel work on consequences? Grace removes sin. It does not remove the consequences this side of things. Not this side of eternity. So you say, where in the world is the hope then of sin and no more consequences? I mean, it's got to end better than everything you just told us. Hey, Revelations talks about no more curse. No more curse when Christ returns, when Judgment Day happens. Listen to this. I'm going to end it on this. On a Friday morning 2,000 years ago, Jesus stood before the people and Pilate declared, Behold the man. It was the sixth day of the week, the day God created man. And now the second Adam was undoing the first Adam's sin. Adam was always meant to wear a crown. Now Jesus would wear one. Adam had been sentenced to toil among the thorns. Now Jesus would have those thorns twisted into his brow. Adam was ashamed of his failure and sought to hide behind fig leaves. Now Jesus would wear the purple robe and hear the taunts of the mockers. The hands of humanity that reached out for that forbidden fruit were the first fists that beat the face of the precious Savior. Behold the man. Pilate didn't know what he was saying, but John the Apostle did. Jesus is the perfect man. The image of the invisible God, the beginning and the end, the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The one who shows us what God always intended humanity to be like. He is the one who takes the full consequences, the full punishment, the full isolation from God, and the full shame of all our sins, and bears the mockery of evil. Behold the man. Let's pray. Father, you know, the irony today is we're all here because of knowing about our sin. Whether it's the consequences of the fall, and yet, Father, because of the fall and that sinful nature inside us, Father, we all answer to it. We all, all have actively sinned. And sin is ugly. The consequences are from the very first sin to the very end, Father. But the good news, the good news is you've conquered all that. You took it all on. You took it all on. And Father, I don't stand here trying to be good to cover up anything I've done. I, I'm here because I'm, I'm a sinner. And yes, growing to know you and the Spirit, Father, and leaning on you, we mature to sin less. But Father, as Paul in Romans 7, that struggles there, we know it's real and we know we are powerless to get rid of it. Powerless. Only you can break that. And Father, I pray for all of us. I pray for those who are struggling to come to know you, who, who look around the world and, and wonder what's the point with all the brokenness in the world. 
or looking in the mirror and wondering what's the point, like I used to when I came to the end of my bottom. But, Father, we know that when we seek you, you help. You're quick to answer. And this church family helped me in many ways that I can't even imagine. It was the first place I felt prayer. I pray that, Father. I pray for your healing. We just come to you and praise you for Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the King. Father, you, God with us, came down here and are not a spectator in any of this we're going through. You entered into it with us. Thank you. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.